0: amen. Let me invite you to open uh, your copy of the scriptures to Luke chapter 12, and we'll continue our time of worship together. Uh, We'll read God's word and then pray, and we'll jump into our time of teaching for this morning. Luke chapter 12 and our text this morning will be verse 22 through verse 34. Luke 12, 22 through 34. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a small, as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would attend to the preaching of your word this morning, that your word would go forth, that it would take root in our hearts, that it would accomplish in us everything that you intend. I pray that you would comfort those who are weak, that you would bring conviction to the sin that is in our lives. I pray that you would strengthen our faith, that we might trust you and love you as we ought. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. We live in a very, very anxious world. And people try to deal with this anxiety, whether it be the low-grade worry or the intense crippling levels of panic, people try to deal with anxiety in a number of different ways. Some people look to therapy. You know, you can pay by the hour for someone to sit there and nod along and listen to your fears. Some people looked for pharmaceutical solutions. In fact, one recent study found that over 37 million Americans are taking antidepressants right now. Other people latch on to the empty jargon of motivational speakers. There's a lot of people out there that want to be a help to you. And they offer little mantras and life hacks. They promote things like self-care, the power of positivity. They will urge you to cut toxic people out of your life, which, if you know what the Bible says, that's a problem because I'm the most toxic person in my life, right? The heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can know it? They will urge you to change your circumstances. This kind of stuff is all over social media, by the way. Some people have even bought into the lies of new age thinkers who promote some variation of the law of attraction, that if you envision something that is good and you, and you sort of speak your truth into the universe, that you can somehow manifest your own destiny. You can speak your hopes and dreams into existence. If you believe it, if you dream it, you can do it. You can look for peace in success. You can give yourself to your career. You can look for Comfort in the arms of a lover and pursue romance and love and affection. You can try to find distraction from your anxieties through a screen. You can try to escape the pressures of life through drugs and alcohol. But ultimately, all of these solutions to anxiety fall short. What we need is none of those things. What we need is some biblical counsel. And good news, I know the best biblical counselor in the universe. No, he's not on staff at this church. He's actually the head of the church. Jesus is our counselor, the ultimate counselor. And in his teaching, in this portion from Luke chapter 12, he gives us not a prescription for pills, not a therapeutic approach to our problems. He gives us a God-centered solution to anxiety. What we need is change, change that is rooted in the truth Change that is empowered by God's grace. And Jesus shows us the way. He points us towards that pathway of change, towards freedom from anxiety. I'm convinced that this text is relevant for every person in this room because either you wrestle with anxiety or you're close to someone who does. And Jesus addresses this anxiety not as a physical problem or or a psychological problem. He addresses it as a spiritual problem, one that actually reveals our theology. One that actually um, reflects the presence or the absence of faith. And as he teaches his disciples, he offers us this perfect mixture, this gracious blend of commands and arguments and comforts that point us to this God-centered solution for anxiety. So what is the solution? While anxious hearts usually desire a change of circumstances, we want everything around us to change. Jesus calls us to a change of heart. In verses 22 through 23, we find, first of all, that anxious hearts need to embrace a right view of life. That's point number one. Anxious hearts need to embrace a right view of life. Verse 22, Jesus says to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than food. And clothing. Life in the first century, if you were not among the wealthy, the upper class, was not as easy as it is for most of us. Just getting by day to day was a real difficulty. There was no drive through, there was no freezer we could pull out a frozen lasagna for dinner. And you add to this just already sort of difficult way of life, add to this the fact that following Jesus was costly. These disciples who had chosen to leave everything else behind and follow Jesus, they had experienced division in their families, and they had earned some new enemies by following Jesus. So anxiety about their daily needs was was a real challenge. Now, these disciples, just to remind us where we're at contextually, they've been listening to Jesus teach, and he's been teaching warning against the danger of covetousness. He just told the parable about this rich fool who trusted in his wealth and his riches. And it's possible that his disciples had been thinking, Jesus, I'm not trying to get rich. I'm just trying to get by. I'm not concerned with all these extra wants. I'm concerned with real needs. But as Jesus begins to teach them, he shows that freedom from anxiety and forsaking covetousness both require the same foundation. It requires believing in the truth. Anxious hearts need to embrace the right view of life. We can see the parallel arguments that Jesus is making. If you look up at verse 15, we can sort of summarize in this way. Jesus says, don't covet. Why? He grounds it in reality. Because life is more than the abundance of possessions. Then, in verse 22 and 23, he essentially makes the same argument. He says, don't be anxious. Why? Because life is more than food and clothing. As we saw last week, your emotions and your desires, they reflect what you actually believe. Anxiety, just like covetousness, has the wrong view of what really matters. Jesus says life is more than food and clothing. So what is life? What is this more that Jesus is pointing us to? Well, life is found in the person of Christ. He is the way and the truth and the life. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Life is found in knowing the person of Christ. Life is found also in the word of Christ. Jesus modeled for us what it looks like to hang on to God's word as the essence of our life. In Matthew 4, verse 4, Jesus rejects the temptation of Satan and he answers him in the wilderness it is written man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of god life is found in the person of christ in the word of christ and it's given to us through the spirit of christ romans 8:10 says that if christ is in you although the body is dead because of sin the spirit is life because of righteousness life is found in knowing christ and his word It's found in the indwelling power of his spirit. It is about way more than just food and clothing. These are spiritual matters that are of far greater significance than even those daily necessities. As Jesus remarked in Luke chapter 9, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his Soul. Jesus is constantly teaching his disciples and exhorting his disciples to learn to see the world through the lens of God's perspective, to understand what actually matters most. Those who follow Jesus must embrace this mindset, this perspective, and a heart that's preoccupied with physical needs, a heart that is obsessed with the day to day matters of logistics and needs and meetings and kids and relationships and all the things that we become anxious about. That heart is either ignorant of this truth about what really matters, perhaps has rejected this truth in unbelief, or maybe has just forgotten this truth. So the first thing the anxious heart needs is to be reminded of what really matters. Do I have Christ? Does his spirit dwell within me? Are the riches of God's word, the promises that give me life, are they mine? And do I belong to his kingdom? That is to be our primary concern. <clears throat> that is what matters most. And this truth of what really matters in life, it not only destroys covetousness in the heart, it also keeps us from anxiety. Not only does, does anxiety show we have the wrong view of life, but it also says something about our view of God. Number two, in verses 24 through 28, we find that anxious hearts not only need to embrace a right view of life, we also need to embrace a right view of God. Anxious hearts need to embrace a right view of God. And you see, anxiety shows that we don't think that God cares enough to meet our needs Or we fear that perhaps he's not able to meet our needs. So we need to somehow take care of ourselves and meet our own needs. But Jesus counters this wrong view of God by urging his disciples to consider three things. He says, consider the ravens. He says, consider the futility of your anxiety. And then he says, consider the wildflowers. In verse 24, he says, consider the ravens. He says, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them of how much more value are you than the birds. Jesus has used birds as illustrations before. In verses 6 through 7, he tells them to consider the sparrows that are sold in the marketplace and how God cares for them and knows each of them. And here he makes a similar point. And those sparrows did have some use in the marketplace, even though they only cost a few small coins. But the ravens makes an even stronger point because ravens were unclean. It was not something you would have ever bought in the marketplace. The Jewish people had no value for ravens. They were trash birds. They ate dead carcasses and things like that. They were scavengers. So they were unwanted, unvalued. And Jesus says, consider the ravens. Even though they're of no value to you, God cares for them. Consider the ravens. Unlike the rich man in the parable, they're not farmers. They can't sow and reap and have a great gain. They're unable to build barns and warehouses to store all of their abundance, yet God feeds them. Then comes the punchline, you are more valuable than the ravens. And this is not a question, it's a statement. Jesus is inviting them, calling them, summoning them to believe something about God that is true, that he cares more for you. Then he cares for the ravens. And therefore, if he cares for something as small and insignificant as ravens, don't you think he will care for you? And this is not a new truth. They should have known this truth in the stories of the Old Testament. For example, God had fed the nation Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. He had sent them bread from heaven, the manna that fell each day to feed the entire nation, two million people. He had given them water from the rock to feed them and their livestock in the wilderness. Later on in the book of 1 Kings, we find God feeding the prophet Elijah during a three-year drought. And you know how he did it? He did it actually through means of ravens. I wonder if that connection popped up in their minds. Elijah camped out next to a, a creek bed, and the ravens would bring him food each day. God sovereignly provided for the needs of a nation, for the needs of faithful servants, And they had already seen Jesus himself feed 5,000 men plus women and children that were gathered as he multiplied that young boy's loaves and fishes. There had been 12 baskets left over, symbolizing God's abundant provision for the 12 tribes, for the whole of his people. Jesus had taught them to pray in the Lord's prayer, give us this day our daily bread. He's been showing them this truth. God had proven both his power and his faithfulness time and time again. We see God's power and God's faithfulness in creation. He feeds the ravens. We see it in redemptive history as he feeds Israel and Elijah and the crowd gathered there next to the Sea of Galilee. We see it in Jesus' teaching as he trains us to pray for daily bread and to trust that God answers those prayers, that he's a good father who will not give us a stone or a scorpion when we ask for a fish or a loaf of bread. And we've probably seen it in our own lives as well, haven't we? You know, We could probably stop the sermon right now and just go row by row and allow people to give testimony to exactly how God has met their needs in times past. If you've walked with Jesus for any amount of time, you have those stories. This ought to form in us a right view of God. A view of God that leads us to trust him. After pointing out what God is able to do... Jesus then pivots to remind us about what we are not able to do. He says, consider the futility of your anxiety in verse 25 and 26. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? When we fret over the future, when we mull over things in our minds and we worry and we become anxious... We are really acting as if our thinking and planning and worrying will somehow solve the problem. That's what that is. But Jesus attacks this foolish thought with some good old common sense. What does your worry really accomplish? What good does it do? Nothing. He says you can't add a single hour to your life. Think about that. If you live 70, 80, 90 years, what's the difference? What difference does one hour make? Even if you could add one hour by worrying, which you can't, that wouldn't even be anything to write home about, would it? It's a small thing, Jesus says in verse 26. Such a small thing as that, you can't even do that. But we worry about all kinds of bigger things that we have far less control over, don't we? As Cory Ten Boom wisely stated, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it empties today of its strength. It's pointless, it's foolish, it's futile. Anxiety reveals not only a lack of trust in God's ability and goodness, but it also reveals an overconfidence in ourselves that we think we are the solution to our problems. Part of having the right view of God is having a humble view of ourselves. Have you ever thought about your anxiety as a form of pride? Have you ever thought about your anxiety as a form of foolishness? Have you ever thought about your anxiety As being completely illogical, because that's what Jesus is telling us in this text. That may seem a little bit jarring. Typically, we we think of someone who is feeling anxious as someone who needs comfort, and Jesus will offer that comfort later. But Jesus is not a therapist who simply listens and nods sympathetically. He's giving us a strong dose of realism, He's giving us some biblical smelling salts to wake us up from the stupor of our foolishness and our pride. And our deception. He says, Consider the ravens. Consider your own ill ability. And then, third, he he says, Consider the wildflowers. Look in verse 27. Consider the lilies. This word is difficult to translate. It might refer to one species of flower, but it probably is just referencing all the different kinds of things that were growing out in the field. He says, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven how much more will he clothe you o oh, you of little faith Have to imagine that Jesus here as he's teaching likely outside that he can even point to some examples of this The flowers of the field are beautiful but we all know it's not because of their hard work It's not because of their brilliant planning This is God's doing, and Jesus reminds us that God's handiwork, God's solution to our needs, outshines even the glorious splendor of Israel's richest king, Solomon the Great. People traveled hundreds of miles to see the temple of Solomon, to see the kingdom of Solomon, to hear the wisdom of Solomon, to see the riches of Solomon, but God does something better than that every spring just for fun. And then it dies and it's usually gathered up and you know they burned off their fields so they could plant crops next year. And then God does it again the next spring just for fun. Again, Jesus reasons with the anxious heart. If God does that, if he clothes the, the flowers, the lilies, the grass of the field with such rich and beautiful colors for such temporary and common things, don't you think he will take care of you? The illustrations here of the ravens and our inability in the wildflowers, these are all arguments Jesus is seeking to persuade us with the truth, reasoning with us, arguing from the lesser to the greater. And he leads us to this inescapable conclusion. Of course God can, and of course God will. To think anything less about God would actually be unbelief, which is why he finishes this section with this stern word, O you of little faith, there at the end of verse 28. O you of little faith. There's a challenge here. To have little faith, to persist in anxiety despite what we know to be true about God, despite what God has revealed to us in creation, despite what God has proven throughout history, despite what God has promised in his word, to persist in unbelief or in anxiety, is to persist in unbelief. It's a denial of God's goodness. It's a denial of God's faithfulness. It's a sin that needs to be repented of. To have little faith cannot be blamed on God because the evidence is there and his arguments make sense. The proof is right under our nose. Jesus is saying, listen, your anxiety is at root a spiritual issue. It's a failure to believe God and to trust him, and it shows that we need to grow in our faith. The Princetonian theologian B.B. Warfield once wrote that a firm faith in the providence of God is the solution of all earthly troubles. It's faith in God's care and his control, his providence, his plan, his provision. That is the solution to our anxious hearts. Listen, friend, your spiritual and emotional health is directly related to your view of God. If you have the wrong view of God, or if you have a small view of God, then that needs to change. That's what needs to change. Not your circumstances, not the pressures that you're facing, not the weaknesses that you possess physically or financially or whatever it may be. What needs to change is your view of God. And and I would would bet that for many here in, in this church, you do have technically the right view of God. Your theology is accurate if you were to put it down on paper. It's not, a, it's not an unbiblical view of God, but it's something you might call a, a neglected view of God. What you know to be true is often out of sight, out of mind, and it fails to get traction emotionally for you when life is difficult. I was thinking of how to illustrate this, and the the image that came to mind is, you know, as we forget God, it's sort of like someone who goes on vacation to a beachside uh, condo. And, you know, you have floor-to-ceiling windows, walk-out porch steps that go right down to the sand and a beautiful beachside view that's facing west, and you can see the sunset right there. That's the truth of of what God is, that beauty, that glory, that splendor. But we are like people who sit in the bedroom of the condo with our nose four inches from the wallpaper, staring at the little cheesy designs on the wallpaper, neglecting to turn our heads and look at something that is so much more glorious, so much more compelling, so much more satisfying to our souls. It's right there. But we neglect to gaze upon God. We need to see God more fully, more frequently, and stop fixating on our problems and our circumstances and our needs and instead lift our gaze to behold our God. Anxious hearts need to embrace a right view of life. We need to embrace a right view of God. And then, thirdly, anxious hearts need to embrace the right priorities. Embrace the right priorities. Typically, when we feel anxiety, we're desperate for God to do something for us. It's fascinating here how Jesus instructs those who are anxious rather to focus on serving and obeying God. Look in verse 29 through 34. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. The word seek here that Jesus uses three times, it means to devote ourselves to something. It's a, it's a commitment. It's a, it's a focus on something that we are consistently pursuing and focusing on. So Jesus isn't saying here, don't go to work, don't make a grocery list, don't buy new clothes for your kids when the, you know, their jeans are about two inches too short. He's not saying that we should neglect those daily necessities. He's saying, don't let those matters of daily life rule your heart. Those are not to be the things that weigh heaviest on you. Those are not to be the things that consume your energies and your affections. We don't seek those things. He says, do not seek those things or be worried. And the word for worried here is a different word than what's translated anxiety in verse 22, 25, and 26. The word that the ESV renders worried here has the idea of being lifted up sort of like a ship whose sail is full of wind rising and falling on the giant swells in the ocean. It means being all worked up about something. Jesus says, don't don't be obsessed with seeking the things of this world and don't get all worked up about those things. And he gives us a new reason why we should not be worried. He says, because listen, that's how the world operates. That's how the world operates. He references here the nation's Of the world. He says in verse 30, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. There's pagan people out there who don't worship God, who do not trust Him, who have not believed His promises. But if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're one of His disciples, we're supposed to be different than the world. Our faith ought to set us apart. So Jesus says, don't be consumed with with worrying about those things. Don't get all worked up about that. That's how godless people who don't know the Lord, that's how they operate. And then Jesus does give a word of comfort and assurance. He says, your father knows that you need them. Jesus is willing to rebuke us. He will confront. He will challenge. But he will also comfort and encourage. And he does here. He says, your father knows that you need them. The nations of the world cannot call God father, but we can. This is a great privilege. The relationship we have with God is one that is marked, one that is defined by his personal care, by his love for us, by his loyalty even to us. Our faith in God is not simply because he is powerful. It's because there is a relational commitment that we have been drawn into by his grace. We've been adopted as his children, and he does not neglect his children. Your father knows what you need. He knows about your financial situation. He knows about that painful relationship. He knows about that difficult decision that you have to make very soon. He does. He knows about the political future of our nation. He knows about the diagnosis you might receive or the diagnosis that you have received. He knows. So don't fret. This is not a promise that everything will be easy, but it does mean that we will not be alone. I was preaching through Exodus a few years back. Many of you will remember. I think we were back in in the hotel at this point. In Exodus chapter 2, there was a phrase that really jumped off the page for me. Israel had been in Egypt for 400 years. They were suffering as slaves. Listen to Exodus 2, 24 and 25. It says, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Those verbs, those verbs are life for the anxious heart. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. Jesus encourages his disciples, your heavenly father knows what you need. And it is this reality that frees us to not be anxious and instead to focus on the things that God wants us to be doing. We don't need to be paralyzed by anxiety or worry. We're not to live like the godless nations who walk in spiritual darkness. Our father knows our needs and that frees us to actually seek his kingdom. Jesus gives us the alternative to worry and anxiety in verse 31. He says, instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Many of you are aware that anxiety is a tremendous drain on your energy. It drains you emotionally and mentally and even physically and, and we are tempted when we feel anxious, when we feel worried, we're tempted to devote our time and our effort and our resources to alleviating whatever we think is the source of that anxiety and pursuing whatever we think the solution is that will help us to feel better. But Jesus points us in a different direction. He urges us to use our time and our effort and our energy to seek his kingdom, or to replace the wrong focus with the right focus. To replace the wrong concerns with the right concerns. To replace the wrong priorities with the right priorities. If you're feeling anxious, you're not just a helpless, passive victim who has to sit and wait and do nothing. Jesus encourages us, says, your father knows you need to get busy seeking his kingdom. So what does it actually mean to seek his kingdom? Well, to put it simply, I think it's synonymous with seeking Christ. Knowing Christ is how we enter the kingdom. Becoming like Christ is how we live as citizens of the kingdom. Serving and obeying Christ is how we invest in his kingdom. Devoting ourselves to the life and ministry of the church, which is the body of Christ, is how we participate today in the present reality of the kingdom. Telling other people the good news about Christ, sharing the gospel, is how we advance the mission of the kingdom. To seek the kingdom is to seek Christ, to serve Christ, to love Christ. In essence, to seek, his, seek first his kingdom means to live a Christ-focused, Christ-centered life. Perhaps you've never thought about that as the answer for your anxiety, to get busy doing the things that Christ calls you to do, which replaces and displaces those lesser concerns, those worldly concerns. And then Jesus offers us a a string of comforts and assurances. First, he says, as we seek the kingdom, as we get busy doing what God has called us to do, he says, all these things will be added to you. The food and the clothing which represent here the concerns for our needs in day-to-day life. He says, God is going to take care of that. God promises to meet your needs, Christian. Maybe not all your wants, but he will meet your needs. A second word of comfort, Jesus reminds us of our relationship to God once again. As he calls God for a second time now, our Father. Why do you think he has to repeat that a second time? Probably because we need reminded and because this is so central to us experiencing the peace that God desires to give us. We know God as a Father. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He is our Father and we are his flock says, fear not little flock. This is not a derogatory statement to call his disciples a little flock. This is a word of care and tenderness. This echoes the precious logic of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, meaning I shall not be in need. He's the one who leads us into green pastures. He's the one who who prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. He's the one who's with us, even if we go through the valley of the shadow of death. The great shepherd, our God, comes to us in the person of his son, who is the good shepherd, who lays down his very life for the sheep. Fear not, little flock. Our confidence in what God is like as a father and as a shepherd gives us confidence in what God will do in meeting our needs. A third word of comfort, he tells us that as we seek the kingdom, he says that God is delighted that he, it's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God doesn't dangle the blessings of the kingdom in front of us like a carrot on a stick and then sort of yank it away when we get close. No, it is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And this is really a beautiful word of good news because Anxiety, as we've already seen, is pointless, it's frustrating, it's futile, it does no good. You can worry, 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 and it doesn't actually help anything. But seeking the kingdom, in in contrast to worry, is actually rewarding and satisfying and fruitful and effective, because God delights to satisfy those desires, the desires of such seekers. As we come to Christ, for example, God gladly bestows on us the blessing of salvation God never turns anyone away who comes to Christ, repenting of sin and crying out in faith, saying, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He gladly extends the blessings of salvation to all who come. As we follow Christ, we know that it is God's will to conform us to the image of his son. When we're seeking the kingdom, we're seeking to grow in wisdom and maturity and holiness. And you know what? That's exactly God's will for you. Those whom he foreknew, Paul tells us in Romans, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Do you think God is going to work against you when you're seeking to become like Christ? No, he delights to give you that blessing. As we serve and obey him, he delights in our good works and gladly rewards us. As we seek the kingdom, as we'll see in a moment, we're laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. As we participate in the life of the church, God gladly equips us. He bestows gifts on each and every believer, gifts of the Holy Spirit, gifts that are utilized to build up and edify the church. It's his good pleasure to give us the kingdom as we seek his kingdom. As we share the gospel in the world, God sovereignly uses our witness, our proclamation of the good news to bring others into the kingdom. So fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's not a stingy God. He is not callous. He does not hold us at arm's length. He is not a reluctant giver of these rich spiritual blessings. He gives us life. He gives us Christ. He gives us citizenship in his kingdom. He gives us meaning and purpose as we serve him. And he gives us an eternal inheritance and reward in the future kingdom that is coming. That ought to incentivize us to seek his kingdom. Worry is pointless, but seeking the kingdom brings with it abundant blessings from God. I think we see this idea summed up so poignantly in Psalm 37, 4, where the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You can read that in a man-centered way that, well, if I just make God happy, then I can get whatever I want, you know, the car, the house, the wife, the health, the riches, the success, whatever it may be. But that's not what that verse is saying. It's saying when you delight in the Lord, you desire him, you desire his word and his ways, you desire his will. When you want what God wants, guess what? He's going to satisfy those desires because now you're wanting what he wants. Fear not, little flock, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So seek the kingdom. And then Jesus gives us a practical step towards seeking the kingdom. He gives us one example of one thing we can do if we're serious about seeking first his kingdom. He says in verse 33, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Rather than anxiously grasping onto things because we think that's what we need, those who trust God are actually set free to meet the needs of others. Our concern becomes not our needs, but how God might use us to meet the needs of other people. Jesus doesn't say here that ending poverty is the goal. In fact, elsewhere, he will tell his disciples, the poor you will always have with you. Actually, his focus is more about the effect that this kind of giving has on the giver. You notice that? What's the effect that this has on the giver? Well, this kind of giving does two things. First, it lays up rewards in heaven, the kinds of rewards that can't be lost. This is, again, such a stark contrast to the parable of the rich fool who builds these big barns. He stores up all of his wealth. He thinks he has it made. And then he dies and he loses it all. Jesus says, look, if you're meeting the needs of others, you're seeking the kingdom. Instead of being anxious and fretful and hoarding things for yourself, you're actually generous and seeking to bless and minister to other people. He says, that actually gets you money bags that do not grow old. That gives you a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. It gives you a treasure that no thief can can steal. There's no corruption. There's no moth that can eat holes in that kind of reward. This giving lays up a reward in the heavens. But this kind of act of selfless generosity and giving and a, an open handed willingness to part ways with your things if need be, that also shapes the affections of our heart. Verse 34 For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is one of those verses every Christian should memorize. This is one of those verses that should roll off the tongue for us, that we should often think about and meditate on and pray through and think about how to live it out. And it really is one of those truths in in Jesus's marvelous wisdom. It sort of points two directions. On the one hand, it's revealing where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you want to know what someone loves, what they believe in, what they value, look at what they invest in. Where does their time and money go? That'll tell you what's important to them. So this is a diagnostic tool, but it's also a prescription. As you evaluate your heart and you recognize some things need to change, Jesus doesn't say, wait until your heart gets in the right place, and then you'll start doing things like this. He says, no, start doing things like this, and that will help put your heart in the right place. This is not only a proverbial uh, truth that diagnoses the heart. It's also a practical step towards change. Where your treasure is, there, future tense, will your heart be also. So put your treasure in the right place. Your heart will follow. This is both a diagnosis and a prescription. A practical step towards how we can seek first the kingdom of God. This is how Jesus speaks to the anxious heart. This is how he speaks to you today. The anxious heart needs to embrace the right view of life. The anxious heart needs to embrace the right view of God. And the anxious heart also needs to embrace the right priorities. If we were to sum it all up into one point, it's this. The solution for anxiety is a turning of the heart towards God. That's it. The solution for anxiety is turning the heart towards God. Turning the heart towards God's perspective on life. Turning the heart towards trusting in God's provision for your needs. Turning the heart towards loving and desiring and seeking God's purposes in the world. It's a God-centered solution for anxiety. His perspective, his provision, his purposes. Which means our heart needs to change. It's fascinating. All the scripture fits together so perfectly, and what Jesus does here in, is really laying out a biblical paradigm for change, because he's the best biblical counselor ever. And we see the Apostle Paul lay out this same paradigm in Ephesians four. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just summarize. In Ephesians four twenty-two, Paul makes reference to putting off your old self. There are certain behaviors that need to be stopped. Jesus maps off what it maps out for us what needs to be put off. Put off worrying, put off trusting in self, put off seeking the wrong things. In the very next verse, Paul says in Ephesians 4.23, that we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Jesus gives us truths to believe about God and about life and about ourselves. It's putting off, it's renewing the mind. And then Ephesians 4.24 says we're to put on the new. Jesus tells us what we are to put on. He tells us new attitudes, new behaviors, that we're to trust God and seek his kingdom and direct our hearts towards what really matters. Put off, renew the mind, put on. This is the paradigm for change. It's the path to change. Jesus teaches it. Paul teaches it. We could go to other places and see it as well. And I hope that's encouraging to you this morning because if you're someone who who wrestles with anxiety, If your heart is perhaps anxious today, be encouraged. You can change. That's not some diagnosis you're stuck with the rest of your life. This is something God desires to sanctify in you. And if you're a believer, this is not only possible with the help of the Holy Spirit, it's also inevitable because this is something that God is committed to. This is the process of sanctification, spiritual growth. God is not content to merely rescue us. He wants to reform us. He not only justifies us through the blood of his Son, he also sanctifies us through the ongoing power of his Holy Spirit. If you're not a believer, however, you really can't change. You have no hope of escaping and overcoming your anxiety apart from Christ. Until you believe in the gospel and you're saved, then you don't yet have the faith that is necessary You cannot yet claim God as your father. You are not yet part of his flock, which means you're outside of his care. You are outside of his promises. And perhaps your anxiety is actually a gracious signal from God that you need Christ. Perhaps this is God's way of alerting you to your spiritual needs and calling you to trust in his son. Will you recognize today your weakness, your helplessness, Will you agree with God that your greatest need is a spiritual need for forgiveness of sin, for eternal life? Will you come to the only Father, the true God, through his Son, Jesus Christ, and believe in the promises of the gospel, believe that Christ died for you, that he rose again from the dead, and that salvation is freely given to all who come and believe? Trust him with your eternal destiny. Trust him with your soul. Trust him with your ultimate spiritual needs. And what you will discover when you find that everything you really need is already given to you in Christ, what you'll discover is it becomes far easier to trust God with these lesser needs. If you are a believer, however, and you wrestle with anxiety, let me give you a couple practical steps that you need to take. Just jot these down, think about these, talk about these with your small group. If you're a Christian who wrestles with anxiety, then you need to, first of all, interrogate your fears and rehearse the truth. Interrogate your fears and rehearse the truth. You need to ask yourself the question, why? Why am I anxious? Specifically, what lie are you believing? Remember, what we feel and what we desire ultimately reflects what we believe. So if I'm feeling anxious, what is it that I'm actually believing? What lie am I embracing and what truth am I failing to believe? The reality is all of us have this little false teacher that lives inside of us hiding out in the corner of our heart. And he preaches lies to us every day. Denying the truth about God, denying the truth about God's word. And we need to confront that little inner heretic and kick him to the curb. Say, no, that's not true. That's not true and I will not believe you. We're commanded to follow Christ, not follow our emotions. We're commanded to be filled with the spirit, not controlled by our flesh. We're commanded to trust in the Lord, not to lean on our own understanding. So when you feel anxious, you need to interrogate those fears. Why? What is it that I'm believing? What is it that I'm not believing? Martin Lloyd-Jones, the British pastor and doctor, writes a wonderful little book on those who deal with inner turmoil and anxiety and depression. And I've probably quoted this before, but it's worth reading again. He writes, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but there they are, talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who's talking? Yourself is talking to you. And then he comments on Psalm 42. He says, This man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself, and he quotes the psalm. Why are you cast down, O my soul, he asks. That's how you interrogate your fears, your griefs, your insecurities. Why are you cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Rather than listening to ourselves, we need to preach the truth to ourselves. If we discover that we are not believing the truth, we need to repent of our unbelief, reject the lie, and grab onto the truth. And one truth we need to especially rehearse to ourselves is the truth of the gospel. It may be tempting for you to listen to a sermon like this and say, well, maybe God is in control. Maybe he is a father, and maybe I'm one of his sheep. But it sure seems like he lets a lot of things pile up on me. Maybe he loves other people and cares for them, but he's putting this sheep through the ringer. Every time we go through something difficult, every time we feel vulnerable, we're tempted to question God's love and God's care. Pastor H.B. Charles writes this, don't measure the love of God by your circumstances. Measure it by the bloody cross and the empty tomb. I promise you there's nothing that any of us is facing that is a bigger problem or a more impossible problem than the separation that our sin has caused between us and God. There is no problem, no threat we face that is a bigger threat than the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sins. The measure of God's love has already been demonstrated at the cross. And if Christ is yours, if the gospel truth is something you believe in, that is the proof of God's care, God's sovereignty, God's love, which means that's the medicine that's what you need to preach to yourself. Do not measure God's love or God's wisdom by all the things that are happening around you in your circumstances. Look to Calvary. Look at the bloody cross. Look to the empty tomb and believe the truth. We need to interrogate our fears and rehearse the truth. Secondly, you need to cry out to your father. Again, he knows, he understands, he provides, he comforts. Rather than using all your energy to fret and to mull over things and to maybe dump it on that person who's close to you. Rather, we should pour our hearts to God. Psalm 62, 8, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. We're not to suppress our fears. We're to give them to God. We're not to numb ourselves to our needs and concerns. We're to give them to God. Jesus instructs us, doesn't he, in the Lord's prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Take those things to the Lord. Philippians 4 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Take that energy you're using to worry and redirect it into prayer. By the way, this is a great tactic of spiritual warfare because the enemy wants you to doubt God, he wants you to be afraid, he wants you to be anxious. So he's going to tempt you by bringing all these things and putting them on your plate. But if you start turning all of those moments into prayer and worship and, and looking to God, he probably doesn't want you to have a strong prayer life. So you might even experience that those temptations change. It's possible. Think about it. And finally, you need to set your heart on what matters most. Again, when Jesus tells us to sell and give, he's giving us an exercise to do. This is your homework, anxious heart. go home, and seek the kingdom of God. This is an act of obedience that requires faith, but it's also an act of obedience that builds faith. So don't wait till your faith is strong to invest in the kingdom. It's through investing in the kingdom that your faith becomes strong. So trust that God will bless that obedience and strengthen you as you choose to submit to his word. So friends, this counseling session that we've been part of today is free, but now the ball is in your court, isn't it? May we take heed to what Jesus says. May we obey his commands, may we receive his wisdom, believe his promises, and come to know and enjoy the peace that he provides.